If you'd open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And what a joy it's been to study the Sermon on the Mount with you, and I hope it's been encouraging and challenging to you because I just... It just is amazing to me the wisdom and the holiness and the beauty of the teachings of Jesus to guide us and lead us and to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Jesus is speaking this morning about retaliation and sort of an over-entitlement of our rights and our heart's tendency towards revenge. And he wants to replace all of those with love. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word. Lord, we ask you now to help us. Lord, I just despair of any ability in myself to help this people. But Lord, because Christ is in us, both to help us speak and to hear, you can bring about the transformation of your advancing new creation in our souls, even this morning. I pray you do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we ask or imagine through your good word. Amen. The heart of the Christian life is that the life of Christ is actually in us. Christians believe not only that Jesus lived, but that he lives, and he lives in us. Henry Skugel called this the life of God in the soul of man. The Christian life is not simply a general giving instructions to his soldiers, but it's put as simply as it can be put in the words of Jesus. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He's actually imparting his own character and his own power and his own desires to us. The kind of cynical view of the Christian life that reads the Gospels and says, that could never be me, misses everything. It misses the reality that the Christian has actually been united to Jesus Christ. He is in you. His power is in you. His person is is in you. You are united to him if you are a Christian. And it's vital that we keep this in our minds as we come to any portion of his commands, and especially this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, because frankly, any reading of the Sermon on the Mount, just to read it quickly, is going to cause a reaction in our souls that just basically says something along the lines of, that's impossible. And it would be impossible. And it is impossible for the natural man, for the unconverted man. But for the Christian, it's not just possible, it's it's eminently doable. Because Jesus Christ is in us. 
You think, how do mature Christians get that way? How are there these Christians who, who live and breathe and seem to exude a Christ-likeness? The Apostle Paul tells us how that happens. He says, I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead. There's no Paul got better. But Paul died. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, no, I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the secret of the Christian life is really this, that Christ is actually in the Christian, that the Christian is not called to just sort of put on Christ or to sort of be a PR campaign for God where we act like Jesus, but we actually have his life coursing in our spiritual veins. Now, this is important, again, as I said, as we come to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important as we come to this particular command, because essentially, the command before us, the one we just read, is a command to the deepest Christ-likeness. Jesus is the one, above all, who did not resist the one who is evil. That's the command we just read. Do not resist the one who is evil. And nobody did that like Jesus. Oh, he preached against evil and he exposed evil, but he didn't resist it. He allowed evil to have its sway over him. Not drawing him into sin, but making him the full victim, if you can even use that language with Jesus of all of their sinful desires and machinations. He could have called down angels from heaven to stop all the ungodliness that was happening to him. But he didn't. He did not resist the one who is evil. It's Jesus who's the ultimate example of turning the other cheek. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky command just to make us in awe of the ethics of Jesus and his fine moral teaching. He actually did this. He turned the other cheek. He did not resist the evil person when they smacked him on the face. This is what Peter wants us to notice. Thinking about the life of Jesus, Peter said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus is the one who exemplifies all of these commands. And so literally, think about what's happening on the Sermon on the Mount, is that Christ is calling us to live out Christ in you. Christ is in us if you've repented and believed in your sins. Or you might be sitting here this morning, you might be saying, oh, this talk about Christ in me, that's not very encouraging to me because I don't see a lot of Christ in me. But listen, even if you've committed a rank sin or fallen on your face in horrible sins, the Bible wants you to be encouraged not to doubt your salvation, but to understand that Christ is in you. Think about how the Apostle Paul speaks to a group of men who've been going to prostitutes in the Corinthian letters. What would we say to a group of such men? Are you even saved? What's your problem? Paul says, don't you know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that God resides in you? 
The reason what you did is so wicked is because it's so out of character. It's so inconsistent with who God has made you to be. It's so out of line with the amazing gift that God has given you that you are actually the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so believers, wherever we are coming at these commands, you've got to think this is who you are. I am someone united to Jesus Christ. Christ is in me. And what he's commanding of me when he commands me to turn the other cheek and when he commands me to walk the second mile and not to resist evil is simply that I would live out of what he's already placed in me. Jesus is calling us to see Christ formed in us. Now, I thought for a long time about how exactly to get to the core of what this passage is teaching. And it's important that we get to the core of what this passage is teaching because this is one of those passages where there's all kinds of debate about exactly what this passage is teaching. And there's all kinds of uh, misunderstandings about what this passage is teaching. And it's the kind of passage that feels impossible to the point of being ridiculous. I mean, what does it mean to give to the one who begs you? Do you give until you're a beggar yourself? What is going on in this passage? Does not resisting evil mean you roll over when people are harming those you've loved? Of course, it means none of those things. But in order to get the clear understanding of the passage, we've got to get right to its core. Before we deal with the misunderstandings and the, and the, misunder, the misunderstandings of this passage, we've got to get right at what is it saying? And I found, as I thought about it, that the quickest way to uh, get right to the core of what this passage is saying is to turn it on its head, to, to, to think about the opposite of what the passage is saying, to turn it on its head and shake it around a little bit and see what do we see, what, what falls out when we reverse what Jesus is saying. Listen to this. Imagine if the Lord had said, do resist the one who is evil. You should resist the one who is evil. If someone slaps you on the face, slap them back. Slap them harder. It's sort of like uh, Sean Connery from the old 80s gangster movie. If they take one of yours to the hospital, you take one of theirs to the morgue. And then he goes on, not only would he say, if you put this in reverse, if someone slaps you, slap them back. If anyone would sue you for your sh to take the shirt off your back, sue them back. Take them to the cleaners. If anyone forces you to go to one mile, don't go a millimeter more than a mile. Do only what can be rightfully expected of you. Don't put up with their abuse. And don't give to any evil person who begs from you. They're getting what they deserve. They didn't work for it. They treated you wrongly. Don't give them one red cent. So what the passage is getting at is that spirit that wells up in all of us when we feel a need for retaliation. When we feel sort of an entitled sense of getting my rights, pursuing revenge. Have you ever noticed that all of us, even if you're someone who can't speak at all publicly, when someone wrongs us, we are instantly the most eloquent people on earth in our minds. 
We're before the judge and jury laying out their sins, explaining exactly what needs to fall on their heads for all the wrong that they've done to us. Everyone's an orator in their minds when they're wronged, when there's a situation they could retaliate against, when someone has incited us with a desire for revenge. So this is the core of what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at this selfish desire for retaliation, for a persnickety sense of my rights, and for revenge. And we dare not think of this as something from the ancient world that's not relevant to us today. If you have children, you know these verses are needed. Because in my family, and I'll just leave it at that, there has been a tendency for the children to fight. This may not happen in your family, but we have witnessed this on occasion. And how does it go? Yeah, I hit her. But she hit me first. No, I will not loan him five dollars. I loaned him my shirt and didn't come back for two weeks. Or it happens in marriages. Some marriages die instantly through some horrible night of passion and adultery. Other marriages end a, die a slow death. When sort of a tit for tat, he never walked a second mile for me, I'm sure not walking a second mile for him. Respect? Haven't seen him be respectable. There's a sense in which we are destroying the outworking of the life of God in us because we won't follow the graciousness and the love that overcomes retaliation and a consumption with our rights and a consumption with our revenge. So there's the core of the passage. Jesus Christ is in you. That's the core of the Bible. And now what's he calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount? To actually live like his is the most dominant life in our experience. Now I'm going to go off track for a second. I was talking to a brother this week and we were talking about his past. And I was, and I was saying to him, you know, it's, it's amazing to me in our day and age, there is a, a, a huge focus on, on everyone's past. And there's wisdom in that. We know the particularities of how we were shaped through our past. We know the particularities of how God works in our lives through understanding our past. We might know our particular proclivities to sin better by understanding our past. There's, there's wisdom in all of that. But the dominant note in the New Testament is not understand your past. It's understand that presently Christ is in you. Understand that the dominant note of your whole existence is that he is in you, desiring and yearning to be lived out. You are not fundamentally your past. You are fundamentally who Christ would make you to be by his own presence in your soul. Which means whether you had a great upbringing or a traumatic upbringing, there is the potential for you to express Christ-likeness in every area of your life. Okay, so what did Jesus say in this passage? He starts as he often does with what you've heard said. 
He starts by addressing the common religious teaching of the day. You, you hear these words, we've heard them five times now, you have heard it said to those of old, or you have heard, or you have heard it was said. And what Jesus is doing is he's reminding his listeners of the common religious teaching that they've already heard. He's reminding them what they know, the kind of language on the streets of what it means to be a follower of God. And of course, in Jesus' day, the common spiritual wisdom wasn't coming from Buddhism. It wasn't coming from Hinduism. The common spiritual teaching of the day was coming from the law of Moses. It was coming from the law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. He's telling them, hey, you've heard this said. You've heard these things from Moses said. And so what he quotes here is he quotes part of the legal code of the law of Moses, which is this, that all justice revolves around this principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that sounds kind of barbaric to us, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's however unlikely that this was taken literally. It's rather the idea of proportional justice, that the punishment, as we say in our day, ought to fit the crime. That you don't lock a man up for life because he stole a loaf of bread. You don't, you don't give a punishment that's out of sync with the crime. This was the standard Jewish teaching, and you can find it in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. It's actually not even unique to the Bible. If you can dig back into the middle school recesses of your brain, you may remember learning about Hammurabi's code, uh, the first legal code we have in existence. And of course, what did that code revolve around? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so this is really something written on the heart of man. This is really something that we could attribute to what we might call the natural law. It's really something that, that God has revealed to all people that justice ought to have a, a payback, it ought to be retributive. There's a punishment for a crime, but that punishment for the crime ought to be proportional. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, not an eye for a tooth. That would be cruel and unusual, but it ought to be a proportional sense of retributive justice. Now this is what people were hearing. So far, so good. The, they, they were hearing what was in the law of Moses. They were hearing what the Bible actually said. And this is actually uh, pretty good for the Pharisees because they sometimes twisted and added it. Here they're actually saying what the Bible said, but they're completely perverting it. You see, what they were doing is they were taking a legal principle that was to be applied in the law courts, and they were applying it to the personal realm to really their personal vendettas. So they were taking a law that was meant to keep things from getting out of hand. Something bad has happened, what should we do? Enact justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And they were turning it over into the personal realm. Hey, someone wronged me, what should I do? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's the pirate mentality. It's what governs gang warfare. It's what governs tribal warfare. It's this sort of you got me, I'll get you kind of mentality. 
John Stott writes, the scribes and Pharisees evidently extended this principle of just retribution from the law courts where it belongs to the realm of personal relationships where it does not belong. They tried to use it to justify personal revenge, although the law explicitly forbade this. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people. So classic Phariseeism, classic sinful heart, take a little bit of the Bible meant to enact justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Let's keep this fair. Let's make the courts fair. Let's, let's give real justice and equity. No, no, no. Take it right out of context. Let's justify all of our vengeance. Let's use a verse to feed all of our desires for retaliation. So when you go off mad with revenge and retaliation, it's Bible verses you got, which is a real powerful combo in the history of humanity. Now in response to what they've heard, Jesus gives them what he's said. In response to what they've heard, Jesus now transitions to what he's said. But I say unto you, he trumps that distortion of the Mosaic law and fills it up with his law of love. He says, do not resist an evil person. And immediately we're launched into one of the great distortions of this passage. Do not resist an evil person is often taken to be the Bible teaching pacifism. That any resistance to evil is itself evil. Any resistance to someone who would do you harm is actually sinning against the Sermon on the Mount and against the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the great Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy, uh, apparently wasn't a great Russian ethicist because he butchered the Sermon on the Mount. He came to this passage that says, do not resist the evil person. And he said he had an epiphany and, and saw that it meant that there was not to be a government, there was not to be an army, there was not to be a police force, there was not to be courts of law. Anything that resisted evil was the evil itself. And of course, how do we answer that? Sounds idealistic. How do we answer it? Well, the first way we would refute Tolstoy with his idea that there ought to be nothing, not even a dad who protects his family. The first way we would refute Tolstoy's idea that this passage, do not resist evil, teaches sort of a beyond pacifism. The first way we would refute him is just to simply say this. Jesus is never going to say anything that contradicts the Mosaic law. He, he told us at the start of this sermon, don't think I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. So the law that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's a good law. That sense of proportional justice, that, that sense of right and wrong so missing in our day is a good thing. You want more of that, not less. Law and order has become a dirty word, but it's not a dirty word. Law and order is a gift from God, and Jesus would never contradict it. And then the second thing we would say against what Tolstoy has brought up 
is that he's just misapplying the verse the same way the Pharisees did. These, these verses aren't meant to be applied to government. Jesus is not giving a social ethic. He's not teaching a government class in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his followers who are usually going to be a minority in whatever place they are, and he's telling them how to respond to the evil that's going to come upon them. And he's telling them that the way they respond is to not resist. Now, let me tell you something I really like about Jesus' teaching. If you were to ask me, how do you define non-resistance, especially the active Christian kind that's a lot like Jesus, I don't think I would know. I don't know if I would know how to define non-resistance. But Jesus, the master teacher, says, I'll give you four illustrations. And what he does in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount is he illustrates in four ways what it looks like not to resist the evil person. And we've got to understand this. These are four illustrations. If you take these four illustrations, the walk the second mile and, and the turn the other cheek, if you take them as laws, you wind up with nonsense. You wind up with Tolstoy. Someone slaps me, give me another, give me another. You almost wind up provoking violence. These are illustrations of what it looks like not to resist the evil person. And the first one is to turn the other cheek. Notice the words there. It says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And uh, most people are right-handed, so if you slap the right cheek, you're talking about a backhanded slap. And you're talking really more of a slap of insult than injury. Certainly injury could be involved. But the idea here is if you're insulted, you don't insult back. When someone injures our pride, it's, it's no problem for us because he who has no pride need fear no fall, as I think Bunyan said. So Jesus is essentially calling us to what we already saw Peter noticed about him. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I actually saw, uh, I was aware of a guy who uh, saw this principle work out pretty well for him in the dating realm. There's a particular young Christian man, we'll call him Jacob, who was really interested in this particularly godly Christian young woman. And one night in the providence of God, uh, Jacob got to hang out with the girl he liked along with her best friend and another guy, we could call him Giga Chad. He was sort of this larger than life character. And so he's hanging out with the girl he likes and with her best friend and with Chad. And the entire time, Chad is insulting Jacob, belittling him. And he thought to himself, Jacob thought to himself, if I need to put this guy in his place and put him down to get this girl, I don't want her. If that's the kind of guy she'd be impressed with, I don't want that kind of girl. And in the providence of God, this guy's kindness in the face of all of Chad's insults actually won the girl's heart. Now, there are lots of stories like that. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a drunk by the name of Billy Bray. He went on to be a, a Cornish uh, evangelist. 
And Bray fought, before his conversion, he fought everyone. He was just a brute. And he just was the kind of guy who's always in a brawl and always beating people up and always winning. He was a nasty fighting drunk. And then he was converted. And after he was converted, another fighter who wasn't as strong as Bray thought, now's my chance. I'll beat the wimpy new Christian up because he probably won't fight back. And Bray, I'm not saying it's always wrong to fight back, but Bray, putting this principle into practice, was attacked, took it on the chin and looked at the guy and said, may God forgive you even as I forgive you. Well, this guy was troubled for a couple days and then converted. Because imagine that. Christ-likeness wins people to Christ. Now, if you're asking yourself, is self-defense always wrong? Turning the other cheek, is self-defense always wrong? Can a Christian never put an insulting man in his place? Can a Christian never fight? You have to remember about my story about Billy Bray, about Jacob. Even Jesus turned the other cheek. These are all illustrations. They are not one-size-fits-all rules that are going to apply in every circumstance. Sometimes the fool is talking, and you need to answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be proud. Sometimes there's someone someone ready to fight, and there's a matter of principle or protection involved, and it's right to fight back. But Jesus is talking about something near and dear to our heart, our own sense of pride that hates to be insulted at all. And he says that is to be put to death utterly. You cannot be a faithful witness to Jesus if you can't take an insult with grace. Now the next verse we get, the next illustration we get, says this, that we are to bless when we are sued. We're to bless when we're sued. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, in Jewish law, when you sued someone, you could literally sue them for the shirt off their back. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll find you were not allowed to sue a man for his cloak. The cloak was too vital for life. It's basically the tent you wore. It was, it was what would keep you warm at night. It, it ensured that you had the basics of a human existence. You couldn't take a guy to the cleaners to that extent. But what Jesus says is when they come after for your shirt, which they may be legal entitled to, give them beyond that what they're not legally entitled. The picture is of a man being sued for, say, $10,000 and then writing a check to the one suing him for a million. It reminds me of a story that's told of Dr. Moeller during the tumultuous days where the local seminary was being reformed from a very liberal school to a very conservative one. Uh, During that time, Moeller had protesters outside of his office. What do you do when there's protesters outside of your office? Well, you could have security take them away. Uh, You could call the police. Or you could do what Dr. Moeller did. He reportedly ordered all of them pizza. It's the picture here. Eugene Peterson gets the idea quite well in his paraphrase of this verse. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. 
I knew a Christian family who, when they discovered their daughter was being teased and bullied at school, they bought chocolate bars for all the bullies, and their daughter took them to school and offered them to the bullies, saying, choose your favorite. That's the idea. Bless those who are out to get you. Now, if this is sounding a lot like Jesus on the cross, it should. Because he is the one who, when we come after him, charging him with being a forgetful God, a wicked God, or my favorite, a non-existent God, he responds to all of us putting us, putting us on the stand with blessing, even by dying on the cross for our sins. Now again, this passage is not inconsistent with Christians going to court. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find 25% of the whole book is spent with Paul in court. He's regularly in court. But why is he there? It's not this persnickety, I will have my rights. But rather as Paul is fighting for a larger principle. Probably fighting to make sure that Christians could preach the gospel freely without fear of arrest. So again, you can't take these illustrations as, as laws and then just steamroll the whole Christian life. Jesus is cultivating a heart with the illustrations. He's not saying, don't go to court like Paul. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying, never defend yourself when, when someone slaps you on the cheek. There, there may be a time for such things. But he's dealing with something that if we're honest, we all struggle with. A deep desire for retaliation. A deep desire, not just to go to the court when it's a matter of principle, but to get my rights. Now, if you want to talk about syncretism and different cultures having issues, we are in a culture addicted to personal rights. And honestly, my thought as I was thinking of saying these words to you this morning was, there's no American on earth who naturally just, do not tread upon me is a motto that we apply in the most individualistic places. And Jesus would kill it. And make us people who would bless even when we're having our rights infringed on. Third illustration is Jesus used the very famous illustration of going the second mile. If someone if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, there's a real particular context to this verse. Uh, the Jews, you'll remember, were an occupied people. They lived under Roman occupation. So they lived with the soldiers that represented an outside force over them all the time. And those Roman soldiers had the right to walk up to any person anytime and saying, hey, I need that bag moved over there. I need this armor moved over there. Pick it up and take it a mile. They had, they had the right to procure any citizen's services for one mile at any time. And you can imagine what a great warm feeling that produced in the Jewish soul towards the Roman government. And Jesus says, when that happens, don't just go the extra mile. Go two more miles. Chinese preacher, Watchman Nee, not to be consulted on every issue, but Watchman Nee had a wonderful story of a Chinese farmer who was being abused but found the power to go the second mile. Now, every day, 
this farmer would haul water up a hill to his rice paddy. And if you know how to cultivate rice at all, it's ba almost done underwater. Basically, you would build a berm or build a, a, a fortress seems too strong, but build a berm around the, the farmland. And then that whole area has to be flooded with water. And so now we're talking about a piece of flat land that's been cultivated up a hill. And this Chinese man would go and fill pails of water and walk them up the hill to fill this area where he would grow his rice. Huge work. And every day he did it, his neighbor would come along and cut a hole in the berm and make all the water flow down into his rice paddy. Now the first farmer was a Christian. And he decided that in this case, and I'm not saying this is the case in every situation, that what he ought to do is let it happen. Let the water go down, let it be stolen every day. But he had no peace. They had no peace. They had no peace about what they were doing. They, they thought, we're trying to obey Jesus. We're even being wronged. We're turning the other cheek. We're being wronged. We have no peace. And another Christian brother came along and gave them an idea and said to them, you know, you're doing something wonderful, but you actually haven't gone the second mile. So the Chinese farmer began to wake up earlier and fill his neighbor's rice paddy with water first. And then he would fill his own. And then he had peace. And he had peace because the Christ who was in him was getting his full expression. The Christ who was in him was living out his very life in him. Now let me ask you this. Is there even a chance that if someone wrote your biography, there would ever be a story remotely similar to that? where you were not only wronged, someone say, well, it's not always right to be wronged. I agree. Let me just ask you, is there even a chance that if someone had all the diaries, even the teenage ones where you talked about taking off the mask, anyway, if, you, if, they, had all, if, they, if they had all of these, if they had all of this, would there be any evidence that you'd ever gone the second mile when it was difficult for you? May God give us that. Lastly, Jesus says this. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And again, you can take a passage like this and make it ridiculous. Every single time a panhandler asks you for money, give them money. Every time someone comes and tries to scam the store you work at, start giving them money. And you can take the passage just like that. But the problem is you're going to wind up doing a head-on collision with other verses in the Bible. If a person is not willing to work, they should not eat. There's three of you know that verse. That's fantastic. The rest of you are too busy working to learn it. But the, the verse is that if you will not work, you will not eat. Or take Paul's instructions for which widows should be provided for in this uh, collection that he had that would provide for widows. And he says, not widows who haven't worked hard. Those who are given to self-indulgence are not to be provided for. Again, did Paul not read the Sermon on the Mount? Of course he did. But actually, it's Paul who gives us the clearest insight about how this verse is to be applied. 
You've got to remember what we're talking about primarily here is when evil people are opposing you, when evil people are out to get you. You know what happens sometimes? So when evil people are out to get you, sometimes they wind up down on their luck and they wind up coming to you with their hat out, asking for help. And Jesus says, if they do, help them out. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul put it. It's basically the same exact teaching as Jesus, but it makes it so clear. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. And then later on in the passage, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, what we're doing is we're addressing the heart. When someone do, does you wrong, what happens? All generosity towards that person dries up. I mean, there are people that I love to be generous to, but that is not one of them. And Jesus says, that enemy who does you wrong, is this sounding like the cross? This enemy who does you wrong, if they come begging, give them all they need. That's actually everyone in this room who knows Jesus. We were enemies of God who came begging. And though every bit of incentive in his heart would have been there to turn you and I away, the generosity of grace was still there, even towards sinners like us. Well, I'll say a couple things and then I'm going to shut her down. Beloved, it's nothing like Christ-likeness to draw men to Christ. Evangelism programs are great. Preaching is great. But six or seven hundred people who in their daily lives turn the other cheek go the extra mile when the company passes some really stupid policy and you rise to meet it and exceed it, that stuff gets attention. That stuff gets you the opportunity to speak the gospel that's necessary for people to be saved. Second thing I want, I want to mention is, I, I pointed this out, I didn't make a big deal about it, let me, let me point it out a little bit more right now. The primary context here is equipping the church for persecution, right? When someone does evil against you, here's how you respond. And of course, we know from earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the persecuted. So Jesus is getting ready a people who are going to get sued. He's getting a people who are going to get slapped. He's getting ready a people who are, who are going to be done wrong. And it's very interesting because most American Christians that I speak to are aware that it looks like that kind of persecution is probably increasing in our land. Our chances of experiencing that kind of explicit, overt, even violent, legal persecution is increasing. And it's interesting to me that at the time when all the Christians are agreed more and more persecution is coming, the primary thing we're focused on is how our government should be better. And what influence Christians should have on the government? Should we be Christian nationalists or Christian theonomists? Or should we be uh, exercising significant influence over our government? And I'm down for all those conversations. 
I believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he has something to say to every single realm of society, including our rulers and authorities. But how strange that at a time of persecution, we're primarily telling the government how they should be, rather than being the kind of people who actually have real influence. You see, if you're not someone who turns the other cheek, and you're not someone who goes the extra mile, you're not the salt and light of the world. And if you're not the salt and light of the world, you're just one more talking head on one side of the aisle. There's nothing distinct about you. There's nothing distinct to offer the world. And so, yes, yes, let's think about how Christians ought to affect politics, but let's think first about how Christ ought to affect Christians to be a particular kind of people in this world. And then lastly, if it's not clear enough by now, to do any of this, you must be born again. You must have the life of Christ in you. And if you will recognize the depth of your sin and turn from it and trust in the one who died on the cross for sinners, you will be. You will be born again and you will have the life that's able to obey the life of God in the soul of man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your gracious gospel and your gracious commands. We pray that you would lead us and guide us, that you'd cause us to submit to you, to surrender ourselves, and to see Christ fully formed in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.